are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. I am your host, Peter Bandettini. Here we discuss with brain mapping scientists, cutting edge findings, initiatives, controversies, and tools, and try to put it all in perspective. In this episode, I discuss all things consciousness with Dr. Melanie Boley, an assistant professor in neurology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss clinical applications of consciousness assessment, sleep, a model of consciousness known as the integrated information theory, and much more. Enjoy. Uh, welcome to OHBM Neurosalience podcast. Uh, this is a podcast that uh, highlights people, issues, uh, interesting findings uh, uh, in the field of brain mapping. And uh, uh, today we have uh, our guest is Dr. Melanie Boley. She's a neurologist and neuroscientist who's worked more than uh, 15 years or more than that uh, 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 in the field of altered states of consciousness. Uh, such as vegetative state, sleep, and anesthesia. She's worked with and has been mentored by such people as Stephen Lorries, Adrian Owen, Marcello Massimini, and uh, Carl Friston. Uh, her research is directed at combining neuroimaging techniques such as PET, fMRI, TMS, EEG, and high-density EEG, and potentially simultaneous EEG and fMRI to a theoretical framework uh, known as the integrated information theory of consciousness, which we'll, which we'll get into a little bit in the podcast. Um, she hopes to uncover the neural mechanisms associated with the level of consciousness, as well as its contents uh, in healthy subjects and neurologic patients. So she's both a clinician and a researcher. Uh, she has over 150 publications and an impressive H index of 77 and is associate editor of journals such as Neuroimage Frontiers in Consciousness Research, Frontiers in Brain Imaging Methods, and neuroscience of consciousness. Uh, she's in, and currently, she's an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in the neurology department with a secondary appointment uh, in psychology. Uh, she received her MD in 2005 and her PhD in 2009, both from the University of Liège, Bel Belgium. Uh, and from 2009 to 14, she did postdocs at the University of Liège and University of College London, and also the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so by all measures, uh, Dr. Boley is a, is a rising star in, our, in advancing our understanding of the neural correlates of altered states of consciousness. Uh, she also collaborates with uh, many luminaries in the consciousness research field, including Christoph Koch and, and Julia Tononi, who's also at, at Madison. So uh, welcome, Melanie, and uh, uh, it's, it's great to have you on this podcast. Um, so just to, before we get into all the questions. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, Peter. It's oh, <laughs> my, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, yeah, so before we get into all the questions, uh, just I usually like to start out by, by understanding, you know, by just getting a sense of how you got started, how you actually, I mean, everyone has an interesting sort of perspective on, on how, what made them interested uh, in the brain itself, and also in consciousness. And so how, were there any, any events in your life that were significant as far as that's concerned? I have to say, I think 
it's thanks to my my parents my education they were quite strict I, I grew up in the virgin countryside and in my summertime for example I had not much to do because they wanted us to basically stay in the nature and not play video games or things and then I started actually to look a lot because there was not much to do outside to look in, inside and got interested in reading about dreams daydreaming and the mind and then I thought, you know, I hesitated to do psychology versus medicine, but I thought in medicine, there was a lot of things about the body that were known. And so I decided to become an MD. And then from there also, same reason in neurology, there was much more, I thought, kind of building block of knowledge in psychiatry. That was my opinion. Then I decided to become a neurologist. But then doing so, I also saw that there was so much to learn about looking inside the brain, not only, you know, the behavior, but also looking inside the brain with neuroimaging. And so I approached people in the edge like Pierre McCann, Stephen Norris to try to work with them. And I was super lucky to be actually able to be trained by both Pierre McCann and Stephen Norris because they had very complementary point of views, working on dreams, working on sleep, working on coma. And so that's kind of how I got started. And then doing my PhD, I, I compared basically sleep, anesthesia and coma and tried to find some some general principles and like what would make someone conscious versus not. And then trying to look more at the big picture, I thought that not only doing experiments, but combining experiments and theory was very important in order to find the next best questions to ask. In a way, you know, you have so many possible things you can do. And then that's why I, I moved also to Madison, Wisconsin to work with uh, Giulio Tononi on, on integrated information theory. And just combining clinical work and seeing patients, I, I call neurology the battlefield for consciousness. You see so many different cases that you couldn't even imagine, you know? Yeah. And then combining that with normal subject research, I think this is a fantastic, uh, you know, and then the theory aspect to it. So there's both research in normal consciousness and then in patients and then combining that with theory. And so that's kind of what I chose to do, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, it's interesting how um, uh, you're, you're sort of combining, uh, you know, neurology. I mean, so what, there's a couple of interesting things. One is, uh, you know, this, this, it still seems to me like the whole field of understanding altered states of consciousness is, is just barely even beginning, even though it's been going on for a while, it's sort of, it's maybe picking up momentum. And I think a lot of that, as, as you suggest, is, has something to do with sort of the, the, the influence of neurology on that, it seems, uh, you know, trying to understanding the the physical uh, biologic correlates of the of these altered states, um, but of course it has impact on psychiatry as well. And and so it's it's nice. It seems that the best work comes from combining those those two areas. In that right, area. and neurology, at least like the coma uh, question, you know, like th this is a great place also to start. I was very lucky to be able to work with Stephen and Adrian Owen on that because there's really huge ethical implications to try to diagnose if someone is conscious or not. For example, for withdrawal of care, this is life and death decision. If someone is conscious, you would not withdraw care. If someone is not conscious, then you, you might discuss it, right? But so there's a huge ethical implication in trying to figure out if someone is conscious or not. But then it also raises a lot of issues. For example, we know behavior is not enough because you can be unresponsive, say for example, during sleep, you can be unresponsive and have experiences and 
like when I started, I thought this might not apply to coma patients, but then with Adrian Owen, we did the Imagine Playing Tennis experiments, and we saw that actually a lot of patients in vegetative state, 15 to 20% of them, they don't do anything at the bedside behaviorally, but they're able to imagine playing tennis when you ask with the fMRI. So that was a big lesson too, pushing the field to realize that behavior is not enough and you need to try to find some other solutions for it. Yeah. 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 Because the ethical question is really about subjective experience. Is there someone behind the stair? Right. You know, this is right. the one the question you want to address. And and there are lots of interesting questions that come on how can you actually do that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, especially right if they're if they're unresponsive and uh, and 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 actually, yeah, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the tools. You know, using either TMS or or like you like the experiment with Adrian Owen, in which you you sort of try to talk to the subjects and have them listen. You know, the question that this pops in my mind. I'm just jumping ahead of myself, but um, you know the, the you know the trying to find a, a neural correlative of, of sort of consciousness so that you know you continue to try to bring them out of the coma as, as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, assuming that they're brain dead or whatever. Have you ever had patients who, um, by all measures, by all objective measures, were not conscious, uh, who were somehow able to then, you know, you, you certainly don't want to, you know, there's been many cases like, you know, with Terry Schiavo or, or whatever, where it, it's, it's, it's a hard decision. Um, but have there ever been situations where even it shows that there, there's no evidence for consciousness and, but there's still brain metabolism and, you know, they eventually recover and then they somehow spontaneously start to, you know, have, or, or is it once they've passed this threshold, there's no going back. Um, so the, there are different issues there, like mixed in one. One is the patients and, coma or brain damage patients that are unresponsive, sometimes you can find some positive evidence of consciousness when you test them better, like complex behaviors, response to command, right? If you don't have that, then you have to accept that you don't know because you don't have enough data. Yeah. Then what kind of other data can you get if you have no behavioral science, then you could try to turn to neuroimaging and, and then you know some very complex cognitive acts like imagine playing tennis, everybody would accept that you cannot do that unconsciously, but then there is a gray zone where you need to validate your markers against subjective reports. So you need to actually, you know, look at the neural quality of consciousness yeah. outside of coma, right. try to understand consciousness in the brain. And then from there, you can try to use this to infer if someone is conscious, likely to be conscious or not, right? Yeah. So the science of coma, the diagnosis of you know, coma beyond response to command by fMRI, if you want to actually interpret residual brain activity as evidence for consciousness being preserved or not, you actually need to look at the big picture of the NCC, the neural course of consciousness to understand this, yeah? Okay. So that, that's basically, and yes, there are some, some reports of delayed recovery in coma, which is another complementary question. So if you want to understand uh, like when a patient could recover or not, it's also useful and I would say necessary to understand the links between consciousness and the brain, what kind of networks are necessary, you know, what kind of dynamics are necessary, and then you might actually improve both prognosis and treatments. Yeah. This is what we're also discussing with the Curing Coma campaign. I'm the lead of the subgroup on the science work group on mechanisms, and that's what we argue that you actually need 
to look at not only brain function in coma, but the other states too, in order to get the big picture of consciousness in the brain. Because in coma, you have to accept that you don't know. Yeah. If you don't have positive evidence, you're uncertain and you need the rest of the data on the brain and consciousness to, to figure this out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and right. And it's just definitely does seem that there's better, there's, you know, growing array of tools for, for trying to assess this. I remember reading, um, you know, using like, like for instance, uh, TMS and looking at the EEG response, the complexity of the response. And, right. Uh, so one, one, important thing to realize when we want to uh, get a marker for consciousness is explicitly it has to be validated against subjective reports because that's what we want to know is there someone experiencing so you need to validate it in someone who can tell you yes i was conscious or no i wasn't conscious like i was not there i was there during sleep or anesthesia right that's what we did with cms um but also you have to look at not only wakefulness versus uh, versus sleep, dreamless sleep, you also need to challenge it in states where people are unresponsive, like REM sleep or ketamine. You really need to, in that sense, it's a dissociation between consciousness and responsiveness. You yes. need to validate your markers knowing, that's what I was saying, it's kind of similar to neuroimaging where you try to see what is specific for consciousness versus something that goes with it, but is not the same responsive. Yeah. Because at the end, what you want to know is, that person who's unresponsive, is there an experience, you know, is, is there someone experiencing having subjective experience behind this unresponsive state, right? Yes. So, yeah. and that, that's what we did with Marcello Massimini was validating that marker of perturbational complexity, which was actually derived from uh, some hypothesis from IIT on what kind of brain, uh, you know, causal interactions would be actually required for a cerebral network to support consciousness yeah 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 but yeah okay okay but it is validated in other states then we infer from it when it's validated in anesthesia and sleep then we go to coma and we say okay so what do we find but we didn't validate it in coma per se see what i mean it's a very important because actually you don't know and you have to accept you don't know yes yes yeah no i i right i see the whole process and then and yeah Yeah. each each one is a a state of, of validation yeah um Right. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's so, so we'll probably get into a little bit more of that discussion uh, a little bit later, but just to, just to begin, just to take a step back really quickly, I, uh, your work first caught my, my own attention um, uh, back in 2007. Um, and uh, just to briefly talk about this paper, because it's intriguing and I'm, and I, and it, it seems to have a lot of suggestions, but it, um, uh, uh, and I'm wondering how, you know, if the field has gone on from this or not. But um, so basically your 2007 PNAS paper uh, showing how resting state fluctuations, uh, um, uh, you know, specifically, uh, uh, where were they? In the, in basically uh, lateral frontal parietal cortex and the thalamus. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the fluctuations themselves uh, seem to predict when a subject uh, could detect some stimulus at threshold. And uh, which, which was the first actually, you know, sort of ahead of its time in, in many regards it's showing that, you know, that resting state was dynamic and it actually modulated, you know, on that time scale, sort of, you know, your attentional threshold. I mean, people look at attention changes over the course of, you know, longer time periods, but, but it seems like there's, there's this constant 
uh, fluctuation. And that, that's even a conscious state in that regard too. I mean, there's whole, you can have many different conscious states and you're constantly from moment to moment changing conscious states. So right. I don't know, do you want to maybe briefly uh, describe that paper and, and maybe talk about its implications or any work you took right. further from that? So that paper came out of um, some observations that when I was analyzing the data we were collecting about laser stimulation I was trying to correlate brain activity to the intensity of the stimulus, and that was not really yielding a lot of results. But then if I was actually looking at what subjects report, then I had much better like correspondence between brain activity and my marker. But then also I saw huge fluctuations within session and between subjects about what they were perceiving. So then the hypothesis was that maybe these fluctuations, there might be some difference in baseline brain activity, that would trigger them, yeah. yeah. And so that, that's where we, we, we tried to look at this and indeed uh, what we saw is that if you had more activity uh, at baseline just before the stimulus was presented, like both in uh, somatosensory cortex but also in frontoparietal areas, you were more likely to detect it. Yeah. And, and that has been actually confirmed also by Andreas Kleinschmidt and he has a lot of line of work on this. I, my tack on this was, yes, this, is, this seems to be very important uh, but then I was, you know, doing my PhD on coma and sleep and my tech on this was, okay, but what do these resting state fMRI fluctuation mean? And for me, the simplest question was also to look at, okay, what is there when you are unconscious versus when you're conscious, right? So there are two kinds of ways to, um, to look at consciousness studies, two complementary ways. One is looking at the conscious state being there versus not, kind of a global approach or a level of consciousness, yeah? And then once you're conscious, then you can have a lot of different experiences, like of a face, of a place. And then you can look at content-specific ones. Yeah, these are different questions. And, and so the, the PLS paper was on content-specific consciousness. And then I kind of extended more like move to looking at like what do how do these fluctuations change when you're conscious or unconscious? So that's where we looked at at that point, like different levels of, of coma, but also anesthesia and sleep and try to understand this better. Yeah. Right. And so seeing that when you're unconscious, when subjects report to be unconscious during anesthesia, then you have massively decreased connectivity. That's what you seem to see in most patients in coma as well. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but that there was still some part that was there when you're unconscious, but there was more um, more when you were uh, actually reporting to have an experience. Yeah? So that was kind of my attack on this. But then, you know, it was actually a little more complicated than just if the, the connectivity is decreased, then you're not there. Because say, for example, in sleep, I did a study in sleep where I found that it was not so decreased actually. Uh, it was more like modular, but it was not a massive decrease as I would expect which might be related to something we found out before during this, uh, after, sorry, during serial awakenings during sleep, finding that actually in non-REM sleep, you're conscious most of the time. Unlike what people think, REM sleep is considered as conscious sleep. In 95% of the cases, indeed, subjects report to be there. But even in non-REM sleep, two-thirds of the time, you're actually conscious dreaming, having an experience, even if you're disconnected. And yeah. so I see like everything kind of pieces together progressively by yeah. again learning from not, not, not assuming that sleep is, is unconscious because your behavior is not there, but going further and really try to probe subjective experience as precisely as we can. If you ask in the morning, 
if you if people dream at night they forgot most of the dreams if you do serial awakenings or experience sampling more you know kind of online as much as you can you get much more sensitive uh, for reports yeah interesting so so maybe we'll just um i was going to talk about dreaming at the end but we, this goes naturally right into dreaming um let's talk a little bit more about your work on that and and uh, you know i saw a few papers and, and and a couple of talks talking so one thing that that is striking, at least to at least those people who don't follow the field, is your statement that that even non non REM sleep. Uh, so non REM, uh, I I always think of that as sort of you know eye movement uh, seems to indicate conscious experiences, but apparently it doesn't because during non REM sleep, um, you say that we're dreaming at that point, and you 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 got that information from from asking people, you know, waking up people at various times. Right. Uh, so. Uh, uh, so, so, and that's, uh, and that to me is, is new in that regard. Um, uh, is there a difference though? You're saying that whether you remember your dreams or not might have something to do with some, uh, neural signature, uh, in that regard, or, or, so, or remember that you had a dream versus the dream content. Um, so basically when you ask people online, just after the wake up, uh, if they were dreaming or not. They tell you in two thirds of the cases during non-REM sleep that they were dreaming, and in uh, one third of the cases that they were not, they were unconscious, they were not there. Um, and then in some cases they were convinced they were dreaming, they don't remember of what. Okay. And in yeah. some cases they could tell you the, the dreams. Yeah, the dreams in non-REM sleep are a little uh, different than in REM sleep. It's typically less like of a full flesh story, more thought-like, but there's also a lot of visual content and or self-content in there. Uh, but so it's a, it's a different type of experiences than in wakefulness because you're disconnected from the world, you know, and there is like less uh, self-reflection and some characteristics like this, but it's still subjective experience. Like if we define consciousness as subjective experience, yeah. uh, what it feels like to feel, you know, to, to, to be, to have an experience of any kind, then actually dreaming qualifies, uh, you know, as a subjective experience as well, but yeah. unresponsive. What is very important in there also is because it is a great way to try to dissociate consciousness from responsiveness and also from a lot, say, if you compare wake to sleep, you compare apple and oranges, neuromodulation is so different. There are so many things that change between wake and sleep per se. Right. But if you really look within sleep, within state paradigm, you can actually be more specific of trying to find what makes the difference between REM sleep uh, conscious and REM sleep unconscious or non-REM sleep conscious, non-REM sleep unconscious, find commonalities between them. And when you do that, you actually find that even if REM sleep and non-REM sleep are very different states from one another, the signature seems to be consistently that if you dream, you actually have less slow waves in the posterior cortex versus yes you're unconscious, you have more slow waves in the posterior cortex. And that's very similar between the two. That within state paradigm, we think is very important, has not been done so much. Most of the studies before have actually conflated responsiveness and consciousness, looking at wake versus anesthesia, wake versus sleep, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So that's why we actually think uh, th these are studies that have to be done also more because they're, they're very important for trying to diagnose you know, the presence of experience in an unresponsive state. That's what you want to do in the clinic, right. coma and all that, yeah? Yeah, so, so right. I mean, so it seems like there's, there's uh, and it also seems like there's two directions this, is take, this can take. So it's sort of more like 
you know, using these signatures to uh, better diagnose uh, these states and, and just kind of using the signatures. But, but what about um, trying to understand, you know, what is it like, for instance, the, the slow wave decreasing? I mean, what, what do you think is going on mechanistically? I mean, I don't know if anyone right. knows exactly. <laughs> You're totally right. The mechanistic understanding and the clinical implications go together. That's yeah. also like if you find that a certain part of the brain is much better predictor, like say the back comfort in the front of the brain for right. uh, the presence of experience, it can also teach you about, uh, you know, some why you need to find an explanation why in a way. And that's also where the, the theory uh, can come in and try to explain this uh, potential explanation. And again, this with so the, the finding about the importance of the posterior cortex for consciousness. We find this during these uh, within state paradigms, this dissociation approach during sleep, but it also fits with lesion data in humans and also in animals. Uh, there were actually a few studies performed both uh, in like looking at patients, the effect of surgery, for example, resecting most of the frontal lobe in the forties, also in some schizophrenia, uh, we wouldn't do that anymore, but the data are there to kind of tell you what are the consequences of frontal uh, lesions in human bilaterally, but also there were some studies in uh, macaques and in cats showing that uh, the animals had very complex behaviors. Like you would, you know, you need to be conscious to have this kind of behaviors. That's the evidence we have in humans as well, even yeah. if the prefrontal cortex was removed. So there is lesion evidence that you don't need the prefrontal cortex to be conscious. Yeah. Now, we don't know if it's involved in some contents of consciousness, but it, again, it's a different question, right? But it looks like the posterior cortex is actually, if you lesion the posterior cortex, you have much more consequences. Yes. Also predicting recovery from anoxic brain injury. If you compare models, taking the whole brain versus the back only and removing the front, you get a better accuracy if you keep the back only. So different lines of evidence suggest there's more research needed. Yeah. That lesions in the back have much more consequence again and so on on who's going to be conscious and or recover from consciousness, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Consciousness as well. So basically these kind of lines of evidence from lesion and, and neuroimaging uh, and then also stimulation studies, you know, uh, these are very in, in, important to kind of also inform us mechanistically on what should be, you know, it looks like not all the brain matters, not all the cortex is, is the same. So what are the differences? Yes. That, that could be explained, yeah? Yeah. And, and yeah. so basically, you know, in a, as part of integrated information theory, we think that in the posterior cortex, there is a lot actually of uh, interconnectivity, both specificity and interconnectivity. Um, that makes that um, you have a lot of um, integrated information that can happen. It's not necessarily about the long range connections. You know, we think it's more like this kind of pyramid of grids, topographical yeah. arrangement in the back of the cortex where okay. you know everything, there's a partial overlap in one day. Uh, there's a lot of um, commonalities, different pieces of information that can be specified on the same inputs. Basically, there, it's a long story, but shortly, it looks like the connectivity in the back has very good uh, architecture to uh, lead to in high integrated information and very specific as well, yeah? A lot of different parts of the brain are actually specifying a lot of different pieces of information. Yeah, yeah, no, actually, no, there's, you, you, you open up so many different directions of, of talking here. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, 
Okay. So, and actually this, I mean, when, when you're talking about the front and the back, I mean, the first, and let's talk about that a little bit. Um, but before we talk about that, you know, it just, and, and you also talk a little bit in your paper about uh, uh, layers. Uh, you mentioned with regard to dreaming, like the, the REM slow waves are in the, seem like they, they come from the super granular layers of the visual cortex. And, and I'm trying to, and also there's, there's work you know, we, we actually found some uh, curious results and, you know, we're doing, we're starting to do layer fMRI, uh, looking at resting state and, and we're trying to characterize the, the entire brain. And, and we find a, a clear differentiation uh, between posterior and, and uh, anterior parts of the brain where, where it seems that, um, you know, posterior seems to have a different signature. I mean, we don't know exactly how to interpret it. it it's almost seems like it's sort of a feed, board, feed forward feedback, uh, whereas the front, the, the frontal cortex is more just feedback um, signature. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, we get this pretty pretty clearly looking at resting state power in each, we, we divide the brain into these columns uh, and then we look at the layer profile. And, and, and so it sort of suggests that there's some, we don't know exactly how to interpret, but there's a, there's a clear difference between front and back, um, which was more striking than we were anticipating. But also, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, maybe we should we should step back really quickly and just um, uh, uh, let's you know we've been talking we're already talking about consciousness in the front of the brain and the back of the brain but but I always I always I think I, it's important to 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 define for everyone you know what is the current okay so so starting with consciousness like what's the current like working definition of consciousness I mean it's such it's almost a it's almost a taboo word in, in research where, but with, as a neurologist, you know, you have a very specific idea of, of what that is. Uh, whereas, you know, you might have neurophilosophers and things like that who, who, who think of it in a very different way. Um, so what is, what is your working definition of, of, of consciousness? The working definition, as I said, is subjective experience or yeah. intuitively what disappears when you go into dreamless sleep. Okay. And I do think most people working on consciousness would agree on this definition as the goal of what we want to explain. Yes. And then there are different opinions in terms of how you can actually address this, like methods, you know? Yes. Um, and, and one of the interesting developments in the field too is actually this reflection about method in terms of uh, the, the first studies have been mostly target detection Task, like I did also in my penis paper, but then now there is actually some uh, recognition that this kind of report paradigm, target detection task relevant, uh, are actually also associated with some confounds in the sense that you conflate consciousness with task performance. And so there is some evolution in the field. The same kind of thing you have for the level of consciousness, we try to dissociate experience from responsiveness. Well, in conscious humans, like, you know, no, no more typical uh, humans, then actually you also need to dissociate experience from report. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so there is uh, this kind of reflection in the field on trying to distill the neural qualities of consciousness from report or task performance. Yeah? Yes. Yes. And, and so in, in that sense, it's a it's an interesting evolution. And also like the ways people were assessing consciousness there is more uh, awareness now that <laughs> is the right term that uh, 
there is also what's called partial awareness. Even in you and I awake, there can be some kind of vague conscious experiences that still qualify as some conscious knowledge because they, you can have, when you have a weak stimulus, you can have a perception that something was on the screen, but you don't know why. Yeah. And you can actually notice this with, uh, you, you can quantify this right, quite precisely with some scales like perceptual awareness scale, where you directly ask subjects what they felt and you validate the scale on their, on, on their experience. So they can even design their own scale, yeah? And yeah. when you do this, when you really try to validate the correspondence between subjective reports and the scale, you see that they, the subjects consistently say that it's graded. And there are some experiences where they had the impression something was there, but they don't know what. And this is important because a lot of studies that claim that there is unconscious processing were actually based on all or none. You know, did you see something or not, including blind sight in patients, you know? Yeah. And if you do look at perceptual awareness scale and you validate the correspondence between the reports and the experience in the subject, you actually see a very close correspondence between task performance and consciousness. So okay. there is a lot of interesting debate now showing that, like suggesting that if you actually directly ask subjects about their experience, yeah. the there could be some unconscious processing, but it's much, much more limited than we would think. There is yeah. some debate in the field, but there is an interesting, an interesting tag there, an interesting turn in that myth of 30 years that you can do everything unconsciously, you know? Yeah, and yeah. It's revisited because of these new methods. Another thing is a lot of studies actually chose post hoc the stimuli that were you know, you give a range of stimulation and I, I did the same too, you know, uh, but we're learning that actually this is something that also has biases. It's called regression to the mean and it's known in psychology for years, but we kind of somehow bypassed it because we were trying to figure out what to do. But if you yeah. do this, actually, there's a paper by Shanks showing that you also inflate unconscious processing. So, huh. it, and it's very recent data like from 2016 and debate 2016-17 it started to come up you know, and also same for patients in the blind side. So right. patients with B1 lesion, there is that kind of myth that actually these patients, I say myth because the evidence now, if you look at partial awareness goes for the fact that it's not that these patients can actually do very complex tasks without feeling anything. Right. So they have, they have some feeling of a stimulus moving on the screen. They don't know what it is, but there is a conscious experience going with task performance in these patients. There's even a study by Morton Overgaard, very well done in one patient in blindside, where you ask them with binary, did you see something or not? Then you get a blindside. Like if they say, no, I didn't see, and then they can do it. But if you test for partial awareness, you actually see that when they are able to do the task it's yeah. because they had some kind of weak glimpse of an experience there so this is also like very related to that dissociation between consciousness and responsiveness and these graded you know methods yeah. uh graded graded awareness there is a lot of of interesting changes in the field yeah 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 so i mean that reminds me of of right i mean if you give i mean even if you're sleeping you can you can give auditory stimulus and, and see auditory cortex light up um but you can still remain sleeping and, and it, it's sort of right but even during sleep sometimes you perceive the tone sometimes you don't so we're actually doing a study now trying to figure out you know what are the responses during sleep when you heard the tone versus you don't yeah, yeah. yes yeah. yeah that's cool that's cool and that sort of 
touches on, I mean, right. I mean, there's, there, you know, it's generally thought that sort of like there's, there's certain parts of the brain that are like, you know, visual cortex or whatever that are not, you know, are not conscious processes, but, but they're right, as you're saying, they're, they're, it, 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 it's definitely, you know, sort of a feedback sort of process that, that goes both ways and it might. Right. I mean, we're learning on the way as we go, we're learning about this dissociation between consciousness and responsiveness, between experience and, and task, you know, relevance. And then like with this, we're actually kind of muttering the field in, in terms of trying to really define consciousness as, you know, like different differentiating consciousness from cognitive functions. Now, if you look at now the, the like the data, there is good data that you can be conscious of something without doing something about it. So you can actually perceive, you know, there is a dissociation between consciousness and cognitive function in that sense that everybody would accept. You don't need necessarily to do, I mean, most people, I think, you know. Yeah. You don't need to do something when you perceive a stimulus. You don't, like, you know, you can be uh, in a meditation state where you're not doing things or you're in dream, you're not really performing a task. But, but then the debate, the debate about unconscious processing, there seems to be some evidence for it, but more limited than what we thought, yeah. But still, you know, there is some dissociation between consciousness and the rest of what the brain does, cognitive yeah. functions. That uh, and and that is not only interesting conceptually, but also uh, important for mechanisms. If you want to understand the mechanisms, you need to take it, these dissociations into account. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, okay. So um, I mean, it also makes me. I wasn't expecting to ask this, but but if we flip it to people, you know, the other side of the spectrum where people are highly conscious, you know, they're they're perfectly normally functioning. You know, it seems to me that like, as you learn how to play like a, a musical instrument, for instance, um, you're, you're extremely conscious of, of what you're doing. But then once you become an expert, uh, there's a lot of things you do uh, that are no longer uh, sort of, you know, you're, you're conscious of in some sense. Is that, I mean, that's sort of flipping, you know, the, the realm. Well, there I would say the question is still open. We had even like that discussion with Christoph Koch yesterday. He was taking like basketball dribbling. And I was saying, how do you know? Like we actually should check partial awareness of that. Because if you're like fully, when you're learning something, you're fully attending and conscious very vividly of it. But but I just think this has to be revisited, which is interesting, you know, kind of going back and at, at what has been done and see, okay, so how can I interpret the data? Did they look at binary judgments or no? Yeah. Did they do post-oxidational stimuli or not? And, yeah. and it's, it's very important for coma patients too, you know, because these behaviors that they have clinically, sometimes they are tracking. We don't yeah. really know what, like, or like just fixating you. And you, we don't really know if that's actually in a human brain, you know, yeah. consciousness or not. Yeah, the, again, the NCC in normals and in coma, it's, it's actually very important to piece everything together. And I just think it's very exciting. First, that you need to have this kind of broad view of the NCC and the coma you know, yeah. clinical the implications it had, but also that we are maturing as a field. There's a lot of things we're learning and a lot of things we can still do to try to piece the picture all together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, no, it's, it's, you're painting this picture that is, um, yeah, it seems like you're, you're coming at something. I mean, and also I just want to back up a little bit. Um, you know, in, in one of your papers, you, you mentioned, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll get into IIT in a second, since that sort of, all this sort of hinges on that potentially, but um, it still seems that, and you, you talked about this a little bit, uh, that, uh, you know, differentiating from just simp simply, you know, consciousness isn't just simply stimulus response where, you know, you can have a, an algorithm detect 
you know, faces, whatever. And the algorithm detects faces, but there's no, there's no feeling of, you know, the algorithm saying I detect a face in the context of the world and, and I detect the face. It's just detect yeah. faces. And, and, and I thought that was interesting because I thought, well, you know, this is where people try to uh, somehow put humans as separate from, you know, in some sense where you put yourself, your contextualize with enough layers that you suddenly uh, are aware of, of and, and this is sort of like a maybe a slightly different take on consciousness in some sense where where humans are you know uh, aware of the context of themselves uh, uh, more as opposed to just simply um, you know stimulus response even with complex responses so yeah um, right so you can show like we've done that in let me include it only in a few papers that uh, you could actually have the same function performed uh, by a feed forward or or just pure, purely purely feed forward which is like integrated system. Exactly. Uh, if the feed forward was complicated enough, so in that sense, in theory and also possibly in AI, you could have a dissociation where any function could be uh, could be uh, performed. Everybody kind of know agrees that feedback seems to be very important for consciousness. Yep. So it looks like in principle you can have a lot of dissociation between like function being present and consciousness in human brains, it might be less the case because we think that integrated information is a way to pack many functions on a limited number of resources. Yeah. So actually you can have some kind of general intelligence packed on, you know, energy, you know, efficient way. If you yeah, want. yeah. That kind of evolutionary aspect. Now, the thing is, you know, like every theory in physics is the same. There are some cases where you can test a theory and some cases where you cannot. Yep. So in, in humans, we know we're conscious. I have my experience. I yep. can validate the, the scales of the reports on my experience. And then I can trust that actually the reports I'm getting from the third person perspective are a good enough correspondence to my subjective experience, right? But in some cases like AI, we don't know. Like it's yep. actually impossible to know. Yeah. It is a very similar, uh, maybe with different ethical implications, but then the coma patient, how to infer consciousness in something else than me, right? So the best evidence we have for NCC, for neural collective consciousness, are in humans who can tell you, you know, normal, typical humans who can tell you, uh, yes, I was perceiving something. Yes, I was conscious. No, I was now. Yes, I was perceiving a face. This is now. This is the best you can have. In animals, you can also get some reports, but there's some, like, some more difficulties with you know, getting something that is not task relevant, you cannot study dreams, you know, but you can still some good data, get some good enough data in the sense that if their brain and their behaviors are very similar to us, then our inference are, are fine. But the more you go, say to octopus or AI and all that, the more difficult it is. And you yeah. cannot really test the theory on AI, but you could infer, say, imagine we have a theory that is well validated. That's what Julian Tononi and Christoph like to talk about. They talk about consciousness in AI. You cannot prove a theory right or wrong on this. This would be implications of the framework. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so it's in that framework. sense, yeah. AI is interesting also to understand how brain computation work and all this. But to test the theory of consciousness, it's it's to me you it's a kind of a circular question. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. Right. It, so that's a good. That's a good. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, and so I, let's talk. Let's just for the for the whole audience. Let's um, uh, maybe if you could summarize what the integrated information theory is. Uh, um, you know, just generally speaking. So integrated information theory is a 
is an attempt to uh, characterize the fundamental properties of, of conscious experience and then to try to derive as rigorously as possible using a mathematical framework what would be the physical requirement for a neuronal substrate and or other substrate if, if you know if possibly to support consciousness so it's trying to make predictions about the physical subject of consciousness but in order to do so the difference between consciousness and other objects of study is consciousness can on, only be seen from the inside so you need to look at your experience yeah and then try to find some fundamental properties from it like what is properties that are always true. You could do that for memory, you could do that for attention too, but here we take consciousness. Okay, what are the fundamental properties of consciousness? Yeah. And if consciousness is like this, then the physical substrate should be able to support these properties. Otherwise we don't have an explanation. For it. Right, right. And so for me, it actually, so take for example, integration and information, integration information theory. So the theory predicts that your experience is very uh, specific and has a lot of different parts that integrate together. So then the, the substrate of consciousness should actually also show a lot of differentiation and integration at the same time. So this is starting from my experience. It's actually like it is right now, a lot of different parts that integrate together. It's one, but it's differentiated, yeah? yeah. And then you try to then predict, okay, like what we did with the TMSEG, the perturbational complexity index is saying then if the if experience is like this, the physical subject of consciousness when consciousness is there should be like that. Yes. And so you find high differentiation when consciousness is there and no differentiation and integration at the same time when consciousness is, is low. Yes. So this is kind of the, the approach is starting from consciousness as your object of study, defining yep. properties and then trying to find some measurements that are as um, principled and you know precise as possible and predictions about also the kind of substrate that could do it yeah 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 um yeah. okay no that was good that was good uh so i mean is there any uh so for instance um so before we go back into talking about the the parietal areas of the brain but are there any areas where i mean some people have have, have brought up the uh you know the uh, insular regions or, or, or the claustrum or, you know, where this integration happens, or is it a general sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the general architecture in the cortex at specific areas? I, you know, definitely this seems like the cerebellum is much more of a feed forward. Um, uh, and modular, area. yeah, modular. System. Yeah, yeah. So in the cortex is still an open question really to see where exactly would be. The theory predict that it, you know, there should be a border, uh, to the, the substrate so like it shouldn't be and it kind of makes sense to intuitively you know my consciousness is separate from yours and then in the brain there should be some border we can uh, identify like from the causal interactions where like there should be a subset of neurons where integrated information is maximum yes so they are like some proxies of integrated information we we're not calculating for fMRI signals we're preparing a paper like that and it seems that consistently posterior brain is involved while yeah. the, the frontal cortex is less consistent. Now, it might depend on the kind of experiences you have, you know, uh, like say, if you have the feeling of an effort, you know, or like thought-like processes might be more mid-singulate, but the theory predicts that uh, there should be a principal way to figure this out using yes. integrated information. There should be a maximum of integrated information within the cortex that we can identify. And it might change slightly depending on the task you perform. We actually even see that in the paper we're preparing. 
that is changing slightly depending on what you're doing if you're in wrestling singles and tie sport. But basically, um, it, it there, there should be a physical explanation for why different parts of the brain, like you know, a causal explanation for why different parts of the brain are involved or not. And the, the validation on the theory versus, versus the NCC is very important. On that note, uh, you know, it's also I'm very glad of the uh, efforts that are made right now to um, implement uh, adversarial collaborations. To, to contrast different theories of consciousness. I think this is a great pro progress. Uh, this, it's an initiative by the Templeton Foundation. Okay. So like there is um, two different projects going on, one in animal and one in humans to try to contrast conflicting predictions from integrated information versus global workspace theory, for example. I think it's really great because one, we kind of understand each other better talking to each other, you know, between the different theories. And then yeah. the second thing is really kind of contrasting on the same ground, like find some questions that really make a difference between different explanations. There is also some pilot uh, project that is starting co uh, contrasting integrated information versus predictive processing, for example. Okay. I actually okay. think predictive processing has a lot to say about the brain in general yeah. and the free energy principle. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, so you know, Carl Fiston, I, yeah. I talked a lot with him, but there might also be some part related to consciousness where it has more limitations because it's not really starting from consciousness itself. Yeah. And, but then this kind of dialogue is really great because we can try to understand each other better, see yeah. what are the predictions differently, and then make progress like this, understand a little bit better uh, also the type for experiments that make a difference. So I really like this as well. Yeah, like the, really, I think a, a progress in the field is the methods part, the distinction between consciousness and other processes. Yep. And then another big one is that dialogue between different theories to try to first understand, you know, what is the scope and also the prediction of each one's being on consciousness and all the brain, you know, and then kind of get some new ideas of experiments that can help to answer questions. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, that's actually, I, and it does seem like a very, yeah, you know, I, 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 I know also of Carl's, you know, sort of work and it seems that, Right. Some people could argue that they're different, but there's, a, you know, a lot of similarities, and it seems like it's more of a process of, of more refining, you know, the questions and more refining the. Right. Know. It's good to see like where we agree and then where the the predictions differ, and then you can clarify actually. Right. Like kind of go further into what how we think about. about yeah. Things, yeah. 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 No, it's you know it's. So right away, I mean, a lot of people might think, oh, well, you know, you're looking for the areas that have the most integration in the brain. You know, the first thought would be to, you know, do resting state and look at where the hubs are, you know, the, the, the areas that are most correlated. But that's sort of a, you know, a zeroth order sort of approximate, you know, you have the, you know, anterior cingulate and posterior, um, you know, the default mode network or whatever, but, but it's more than that. Um, and- Interestingly, you know, in the paper we're doing now, uh, it looks like the areas where our proxies of integrated information show the maximum have actually, especially high local connectivity and not so much interesting. interesting state network. So, you know, there might be some interesting, again, the global workspace might be like more kind of long distance, but they, it's kind of complicated to know what other people would say, but they are some interesting um you know new ways to see like what integrated information mean and again it's nice to kind of uh be able to talk between different frameworks to see what you mean by information what do you mean by integration what, right. what are you actually predicting this is right. i think very important and 
And I, I do think there's a lot to look at in, a, in terms of consciousness and connectivity, not only at the, this kind of resting state network scale, but also, you know, this kind of mesoscale, more at the grain where we find retinotopic mapping and all these kind of more content specific in a way, you know. Yes, like, yes, features. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to do, and 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 especially uh, <laughs> right with uh, with right with looking at with looking at you know the combination of EEG and fMRI as well. I mean, sort of you know, what temporal and spatial scale does this occur? You're saying, yeah, that's that's intriguing. That that looking at as, as opposed to global connections. I mean, the, you know, you might have a rich club that has you know uh, just the right amount of local connections, and then you start getting into you know. What is the right amount, and 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 you know what what really constitutes, uh, you know, is it the number of connections? Is it the quality? Is it the information transfer rate? All kinds right, of right, and it looks like more uh, both connectivity and differentiation matter, right? Like if you look yes. at the CG, we have that complexity index is a mix of both the differentiation of uh, what the different parts of the network can specify and then how integrated they are, you know. So there is a there is Connectivity matters, but it's also um, like well, one of the predictions of IIT. We have a paper on on the, the phenomenology of space. Is that grid-like networks are actually especially good for uh, high integrated information, and that might be related to all these basically spatial, being visual space, auditory space characteristics that are like a canvas on which a lot of yeah. features of our experience, like faces or you know, or objects, they, they plug in. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, work to be done in terms of explaining how different parts of the brain also are involved in the quality of experience and different aspects of the quality of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, and I think it's, 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 that's what also is uh, nice in a theoretical framework, you know, that can look at both being conscious versus not and the quality of consciousness. If we can build some, some frameworks like this and test hypotheses about these aspects, to me, that's really also the way to go, yeah. Yeah, no, it seems that, that uh, right. I mean, at least starting with that, and that's actually what I respected a lot about, about the people who are like Tononi and yourself and, and, and Carl and, you know, trying to at least uh, create a model that you can then, uh, you know, test some predictions. Um, and I like the, I, what you were saying just, just a second ago in terms of it's not just, it's not just connectivity, it's not just connections, it's more, you know, you have to have, appropriately modular and appropriately connected. We call uh, it a structure. So we say ex the quality of an experience can actually be characterized in terms of its structure. Like space is characterized by extendedness, a lot of different locations that piece together. It's a yeah. very specific structure versus the structure of like a face, you know, like a more an invariant of a face. It's a very different kind of um, structure. And then you would actually uh, infer that there should be a very different kind of network. You know, yes, that yes. would actually should also be structured in a particular way so that it, it can specify this a correspondence between the quality of experience, yeah, and the connectivity of the network that, that underlies it. Yeah, so that's kind yeah. of like what, what, what we're trying to push in the theory work also is that where there's a part on space, part on invariance, uh, trying yeah. to kind of really see how this maps to different parts of the cortex and then make predictions about this. Yeah, yeah, and it, it right, right. I mean. I mean, so what do you think? I mean, so 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 this brings me back to the idea of you know the you know Carl's idea and many many other people have had this is sort of like the brain as a you know all the brain does is 
is you know try to model the world and, and predict and so we can we can survive in some sense and so and somehow in the process of doing that um, in the process of evolving to do that uh, there's sort of a, a sense of modeling yourself within the world and um, and I'm, I'm wondering uh, 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 as to as to is is sort of is is conscious you know is is your conscious experience sort of an uh, evolutionarily dictated uh, sort of necessary for survival trait or is it an epiphenomena of of just having a really sophisticated model of the world uh, that's predictive? Um, so I think it's also as I, we were discussing an empirical question that can be revisited now even more efficiently now that we learned about. Like, you know, this kind of methods on how to match subjective experience to the measure you have, of the third person measure you have, yeah? Yeah. Uh, but the idea, the modeling work that has been done with Larissa Albanticus, for example, is um, suggesting that animates that the small systems that have high integrated information, they actually, um, they can be more flexible. Yep. And uh, if like, if the task change, and if, as I mentioned, this kind of idea of more general intelligence, we don't know yet, yeah. but in even the this kind of epiphenomenon aspect, as I'm kind of pushing the fact that I think that we have to accept that we actually don't really know and we should check more <laughs> because yeah. it's a very important question also with uh, implications for how we assess patients with disorders of consciousness. And, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, different theories would have different tax on it. In IIT, we don't, we say that you don't necessarily need to predict to be conscious, you know, and it's, it can be dissociated, you can be conscious, and then you can use that for predicting or not use it, you know, or actually you can create something new. But, um, and again, that's where a dialogue between the theories is very useful to see what do you mean by predict? Is it predicting the time after? Or is it that you learned, like with, through learning, you actually have some particular kind of connectivity yeah. that resonates with the world, what we call information matching, it's not necessarily predicting, but you have in your, Yes. Structure of your experience, it resonates with some features of the word yeah. and it might be adaptive. So it's kind of a different tack on it. That's where the dialogue between theories is really actually very, and theorists and I call and, yeah. and others, that it's actually useful to see what do you mean? Where do we agree? Where do we defer? You know? Yeah. And it's but usually, yeah. yeah, a lot of it does seem like in, in, in the, the agreements and disagreements, and also just simply, you know, even the, 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 the disagreements, even in, in talking about, you know, frontal, frontal cortex versus parietal in terms of that part, um, it all seems like it comes down to still trying to, def the disagreements are not actually in, I mean, it's more in the defining, you know, the problem. Uh, uh, and it seems that people have different takes on what, uh, on, on what, what the question is and, and, and what the context of, you know, what the definition of consciousness and, and, and that sort of thing. It seems like the field is grappling with all of that in some sense. No, I think also, you know, there's a part of, uh... Uh, the fact that we're what is special about the sense of consciousness is we try to find an objective explanation for the subjective. Yep. And that for a very long time, so maybe with part with the history of behaviorism, looking at subjective reports, you know, as data or like subjective experience as the data you want to explain was kind of uncomfortable for yeah. people now with the success of the agenda of the research on consciousness, you know, there's more confidence that actually that can be done. Yeah. Also more that we really try to explicitly say this is phenomenology we're trying to explain 
and some clarification between the fact, you know, report is a proxy, but it's not the same. There are some limitations to it. Like you can also be conscious without reporting directly. You can report after a few seconds. You can dissociate the two, right? Yeah. It's the maturity in, in terms of the fact that consciousness is different from other cognitive function. This is an object of study that is not only important to have ethically, but also, as I mentioned, there might be much more that about the, the functional role. It has to be elucidated more. Yeah. It's, it's an object of study that is both feasible to study and also important to study. And so, and 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 we learned a lot of, uh, along the way, as, as we said, now it's nearly 20 years I'm in the business. I started when I was a medical student. And I saw a lot of change, but it's exciting because actually we see that there's a lot uh, more dialogue into different point of views, clarifications being made, yeah? yeah. And a lot of things still to do, but I think there's a lot to be done, including, you know, one of the things I'm also trying to push here in Madison is uh, studying consciousness in patients also with focal lesion, looking at not only the effect of focal lesion, but diaschesis, like the network effect and mapping that to both like this kind of agnosia, content specific deficit in consciousness they have. Yeah. And so agnosia, like being aware versus unaware that you have a deficit. If you become blind because you lose an eye, you notice it. Right. If cortical blindness, if it's full blindness, like Anton syndrome, you don't know you have a problem. This kind of Content-specific yeah. disorders of consciousness is something, and also looking at dreaming versus function, like, you know, experience versus function, uh, yeah. what are the associations, how is it going together or not? The within state paradigms, you know, there's, there's a lot still to do about these. Yeah. Also looking at contents of consciousness, one thing that has been done a lot is it's kind of uh, looking at stimuli that are at the limit of threshold of perception. Yep. But actually, uh, it has to be integrated with, with also uh, spontaneous experiences, or even, you know, looking at supraliminal stimuli. So if yeah. I tell you content-specific uh, change in consciousness is, you have an experience where a face is, is, is present versus not. Well, yeah. it, you can study this in like this kind of supra periliminal conditions, right. but you should also integrate it with the rest of the data showing, you know, supraliminal stimuli, I experience a face versus not in that case. Plus, yeah. if you dream of a face, if you imagine of a face, all these have actually to be challenged to see what is the, the core mechanism that remains after you try to make all these dissociations. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that's, yeah. that's cool. Right. I mean, it, it just, right. It, to me, it opens up sort of the idea that, I mean, so you're, um, yeah, just the whole, right. I mean, there's many, many states of consciousness. And, and I, I, I really thought, yeah, your point of, of agnosia, uh, was interesting because, right, I mean, you can have attention deficits, you can have lesions and not, you know, be, you know, there's classic, obviously, neurology uh, experiments where people are, you know, with asked to draw a clock and they just draw, you know, half of it and right. they don't even, they're not even aware that they do that. Um, right. And I can also imagine that, that uh, uh, even, uh, you know, uh, I just wonder even as far back as uh, Phineas Gage, when he had that rod through his head, you know, was he, fully aware of the fact that his behavior was was altered to some degree. I... What is interesting is some brain lesions cause anosognosia and some don't. Yeah. The classic distinction is broca, aphasia. Patients are really, really aware. They know what they want to say. They cannot say that. They're yeah. super frustrated about it. Wernicke aphasia, it's more like a, a comprehension deficit. They have no clue that they have a problem. Interesting. So some cortical lesions do it. Some cortical lesions don't. There's a lot more to understand about a you know about what difference it makes and for us it's also another complementary way to try to understand 
which areas are involved in consciousness yeah. versus more output areas. Yeah. That's really cool. That's yeah. a good level. So there's a lot to do about neurology and consciousness, and it has been done a little, but there's much more to do. Also, epilepsy and consciousness. There are just a few groups that look at that. There's a, you know, we're doing some work in generalized tonic clinic seizures, looking at intracranial recording, seeing when you lose com consciousness completely. What, again, about connectivity, there's more activity within the brain. What is the difference between, you know, more activity in response to conscious experience versus more activity during seizures? Like what, what are the, pushing to the limit this I idea of cortical firing and consciousness, how can it go together or separately? Yeah. yeah? Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot, a lot of interesting questions you can get from the clinic as well. Yeah. So much to do. So much to do. Um, I realize we're coming up on 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 sort of our, our time. I mean, there's so many other things to talk about. Uh, you know, perhaps another time. But just one thing, Peter, about the layers. I didn't answer your question about the layers. Yeah, yeah. So what we see in REM sleep compared to wake. Oh yeah. Uh, is actually that you have some slow waves in the primary cortices. So, but then not in the rest of the brain, in the superficial layers in that case, yeah? Okay. Uh, but it's basically, uh, and then in non-REM sleep, you have slow waves all over the place. Yeah. But the, what, what this suggests is actually there is a mechanism to disconnect you from the environment in yeah. the primary sensory cortices during REM sleep, which is interesting because we still don't have an explanation why you actually are disconnected from the world during sleep. In terms of layers, it's still an open debate of yeah. which layers actually matter. Do the whole cortical column matter versus some other parts there? I think there's a lot more to do about that. But I think your finding about the front versus back architecture is super relevant. Okay. Very interesting to, to, to kind of correlate that with some, some new consciousness experiments, yeah. Yeah, no, it does seem that, right. I mean, the layer work is, is, is very preliminary, but um, I think that's another direction that fMRI can take, you know, unfortunately it takes, I mean, it might be able to be done at three Tesla, but, but right now it's seven Tesla, we're, we're working on that. And we're trying to actually find good paradigms um, as well uh, to, you know, just help tease out, uh, you know, the meanings of, I mean, it's cortical architecture. Uh, we still don't even completely understand what, if, it, if it's homogeneous, you know, in the sense of feed forward and feedback. And, but it seems like there's some uh, patterns that we can use to interpret. Yeah, one interesting thing would be to calculate, you know, a proxy of integrated information and see if actually that feed forward and feedback versus feedback only, like what's the best match if there is any yeah. correspondence to it. Yeah. I think yes. that would be very interesting. That would be that would be cool. All right, I'll Story have to talk to, to you continued. more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Story to be continued, but I think that would be really cool. Yeah. And and okay, but before we finish, uh, one other quick thing. I mean, I, I also uh, as far as sleep, very quickly. Um, it, it just occurred to me, I remember seeing a paper on, you know, uh, sort of decoding dreams and, and using fMRI to do that, but they were actually looking at a very different, in my opinion, at least for my own subjective experience, a very different phase of sleep. And that's sort of like, a, I guess it's called a hypnagogic state, where just as you're falling asleep, you have this sort of release and you suddenly get these, it's almost like hallucinations. It's almost like, you know, where you see very vivid it's sort of dreamlike before you then fall into your um, uh, deeper states. And it seems that that's another, obviously another potentially interesting uh, time period to study uh, sort of the, the mechanism or of, of maybe release that, you know, conscious release that sort of allows dreams to occur in some sense, I don't know. Yeah. Right, what is very interesting uh, comparing dreams to wake is that uh, there are some particular features of, of experience that differ 
So the, when Baird was looking recently at 140 subjects, we were waking up, you know, at night and looking at the difference between wake and then REM and non-REM sleep. And some features are interesting. For example, you seem to have decrease in uh, metacognition, but also, uh, you know, self is not so much different, but uh, the, in, in non-REM and REM, it's much less goal directed. It's much more present centered. You know, and also in the falling asleep period, we're trying another study now going to the descent of falling asleep. There have been some report compared to wake that you have a decreased sense of self, unlike say during them. And then, uh, and then that you have a decrease of sense of control too. Again, we're trying to confirm this in the data, but this is also an interesting way to look at the NCC in, in, in uh, you know, spontaneous yep. experiences to see, okay, if I have more or less self-awareness in an lack of self-experience, uh, in right. one state, how does it correlate with brain activity and all this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. so yeah, yeah, it is. I think it's an open question to really characterize better these states. Uh, but it, there is a richness in phenomenology and how also it differs from one another and what's common in very different neuromodulation states. Yeah, that yeah. is a, a, a great challenge for the NCC as well. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, oh, that's great. More, that's more to come, but I, I also think that these kind of spontaneous experiences, they were understudied compared to the task-based, you know, uh, yeah. NCC, and they, they have, it's really important to try to integrate them and see when you try to really challenge your uh, NCC, what remains, what is general versus what was more particular to a particular condition or task, yeah? Yes, yeah, yeah. You can imagine designing experiments where you have this, you know, these array of, of, you know, you're, you're, but also it's very challenging to sort of assess the state in a, in a sort of continuous fashion so you can objectively get a measure of, of, of what's going on. Right. So, what we do is waking them up every, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's miserable. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Or also, like in, in, in wakefulness, so it's experience sampling. Yeah. Okay. It's like taking the subjective experience as data. Yeah. And yeah, I think you've done an fMRI paper recently as well. Yep. So yeah, my, my postdoc, yeah, Javier Gonzalez Castillo. We're you know we're trying to just do time series. Uh, we're looking at resting state, and he really cares about you know the conscious correlates of of you know resting state. There's a lot of other things in it, but we're, yeah. we're trying to figure out how to how do you how do you get a person's state without disrupting their state. So right. um, it's tricky, but. Uh, um, at least in that sense, at least in that sense. I mean, with sleep, it, I mean, you can actually just, you could imagine, you know, resting state where, where people are awake, but then you interrupt them at various times and you, you try to look at exactly what's going on ahead of time. But um, right. yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see how that goes. But uh, yeah, no, it's an, the field keeps on evolving. And um, so- Yeah, I think it's really an exciting time for consciousness research too, as I said. We're learning a lot from the methods. We see that there is something particular also to consciousness versus function. There are some dissociations uh, in different ways, yeah, but also a lot to revisit about how we actually measure things, how specific the yeah. markers we have are for consciousness versus other processes, yeah. Yeah, I completely uh, agree. I mean, the and then with also that urgent need, you know, ethically in the clinic. In ICU, we, that's why the curing coma campaign is also rising right now. It's because we see that we know some patients are unresponsive and they are, they are still conscious. We don't know about the other ones. It's very urgent to try to, to improve the state of, of the science. And then say like for TMSEG, we're trying to really make that tool also more portable. But in general, there's an, an awareness of the fact that 
you know, there is so much ethical implication and also so much more we can do about about trying to find some therapies for these patients. So that that that's that's also pushing the, the field forward. Yeah. 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 And 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 right. I mean the and the clinical applications are are almost immediate in that regard. So that's actually really nice. Uh, and that's what helps to push the field as well. So yeah, no, this is great. This is a wonderful, this is a great conversation. Uh, um, you know, it's funny, I always have my, my notes sort of in a linear fashion, but then, uh, then it, <laughs> jumping around because I mean, this is, it's so interdigitated uh, sort of field with the methods. So um, yeah, there, like I said, there's it was so a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, you know, maybe at some point in time, we can have you back or, or whatever. And, and uh, yeah, but thank you very much for spending time to talk about this and, and uh, giving us a sense that there's so much more to do and, and, and there's so much more, there's so much going on in terms of, of this. So, all right, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too, you too. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping and is produced by Anastasia Brovkin, Ekaterina Dobrikova, Katie Moran, Niels Mulert, Kevin Zetek, and me, Rachel Stickland.